Hi, podcasting from New York. They say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is Pushing Boundaries. Most of today's commentary on complex social issues is binary, unproductive, and flat-out lazy. With this podcast, I'm looking to hopefully elevate these conversations, and as a lifelong educator, hopefully learn a few things along with you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. for today is HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. 
So this is the this is this uh, commentary is a, is a compilation of various articles. There's several articles and several contributors uh, from those who've attended black colleges and from um, scholars who've written about uh, the diversity of HBCUs and the myths involving HBCUs. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna just just be um, um, integrating all of those thoughts together and just raising some questions and uh, leaving some questions out there for you in terms of what you think about all of this. Um, so let me just give you the background between historically uh, black colleges and universities. The context is that the there was a need for historically black colleges and universities because at one time um, in U.S. history, in the U.S. in, the, in the U.S. history, uh, there was a, a history or there was a time of exclusion uh, called the Jim Crow. <clears throat> right, and Jim Crow was really essentially a separate but equal um, period of time that um, there was a separation between those who were prescribed as white and those who were prescribed as black. <clears throat> and so there were two different groups, white or black. You feel on one of the one of the other side, um, and a lot of it had to do with uh, racism and dealt with either your skin tone, which prescribed you in for um, black treatment, or um, the lighter, light light skin tone, which was near, nearest white, which is no one's really white, but white, which was prescribed to a different treatment in American culture. In this culture, there was some, there's some, the context around this also is that there, in this period of Jim Crow separate equal, this segregation, again, separation of races, um, and the belief that you know blacks would go to black schools, whites would go to white schools. There would be white stores, black stores, and they would be everything would be drawn down the line where there would be a separation of services and supports for people based on race. In terms of equal, we know this was never the case, right? And so it was more, but it was more separate and unequal. And we've known that throughout history. I don't have to go through that, but you've known that through history, through photographs and. The water fountain and uh, singing in the cafes and service and walking versus walking in the front door for, in the, of a restaurant versus the back door. Um, and so there are a lot of issues. In this segregation is there was a context or there was a conversation happening or a dialogue happening or a debate happening between W. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. So Booker T. Washington is um, the founder of my alma mater, Tuskegee University, and he was a Republican. Uh, w. E. Du Bois was um, a intellectual from the East who, so Booker T. Washington's from the South, W. E. Du Bois is from the, the East Coast, and he, he was an intellectual who believed that there was none of the parties, Democrat or Republican, were adequate and that there should be a third party, party option uh, for the needs of people of color. These guys, two guys debated on how um, the rights and quality of life sh should be improved for people of color. Booker T. Washington believed that, okay, I'm fine with separate and unequal. Just give us the resources we need to do what we need to do for ourselves. And I'm fine with the separate but unequal, uh, 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 separate but equal. And so he was, he was given uh, a land grant to start this historically black college, right? And to design programs that were, at the most part, vocational education at the earliest stages of it. And then eventually leading out to education and then eventually leading out to, to um, 
to education. So when I mean vocational, it was more or less dealing with the land. So more agriculturally focused, um, and then also at times mechanically driven, and then at and then at a later time it was um, ed early education, uh, elementary school, um, kindergarten, um, pre-K things like not pre-K but elementary school. Um, <clears throat> that was his take on how black achievement should be addressed. W. Du Bois felt like, no, there needs to be a full integration and there needs to be equal rights and equal access to all things on this American soil. And he felt like that unless, that it can never be fair um, when you have a dominant group trying to write the script for, for equality. He felt that in order for it to be equal, there needed to be a representation of all groups at the table and that the access should be equivalent because they are both um, weighing in on those decisions, right? And so that's essentially where they're coming from, right? Um, but the racism of early America, you know, largely having to do with early slavery and this notion of, because slavery at one time in early America was indentured servitude, and then it was um, full outright slavery with you know, all rights given to uh, the owner, right? Um, and there were several groups that were involved with this period of time of indentured servitude uh, or, or slavery, but there was an intellectual debate on who qualified to be a slave and who uh, uh, who qualified to be a slave or um, qualified for uh, lesser rights and that came down to race and when it came down to race being black and white it led to a an American caste system and that still exists today that we're, we're deeply trying to fight but this is a generational uh, caste system that has been uh, prescribed in our educational system and our cultural system and you know in all entities of our lives this caste system exists and people have grown up on it and believe it to be a truth or a way of life right and so this is what we're fighting today and also the context is that the development of historically black colleges came out of or was followed by the civil war right so that's just to give you the context of why this was birthed right so at this point you know if you know, just to make it even clearer, if you wanted to go as a, as a black person, if you wanted to go to uh, receive higher education, it was impossible for you to do that in the South. It was impossible. In fact, it was impossible for you to attend white schools at one time in the South. It was impossible. Right. And so historically, black colleges was the first path that prescribed a way for people to reach edu higher education, right? And to get college degrees because there was no other way. This was the way and historically black colleges provided that pathway. And a lot of this was birthed out in 1837 by churches, right? So historically black colleges are actually um, the first um, black parochial schools. Now parochial schools are like your Catholic schools, right? Are schools that are based on they have a religious foundation or religious principles that that are, that's themed through the educational process, right? 
So historically black colleges also come from this, 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 um, this way of life or this way of learning. And the, 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 the churches that were deeply involved with this work were the African Methodist Episcopal Church, United Church of Christ, and the Presbyterian and American Baptist Church, all parochial schools that really got on board with providing an alternative or a, a, a pathway for blacks to obtain higher education. And their purpose, early, their early purpose in this work was to teach reading, writing, math, mechanics, agriculture, and, and um, to develop teachers. That was their work. And that was in 18, 1837. The first school, the first historically black college and university was Cheney University of Pennsylvania in 1837. It was actually established by a Quaker named Richard Humphreys, and it was called the Institute for Colored Youth. So that's some of the context in terms of what's going on there, why black, why, why, the why, and the purpose for historically black colleges, right? In addition to that, like I said, historically black colleges were the first to give blacks the opportunity to obtain higher education. It was created after the Civil War, it, the classes began in people's homes, churches, basements, and schoolhouses. And so wherever it could happen under the title of this, this Institute for Colored Youth, wherever it was located with churches, it was kind of like it was an ex, kind of like your extension of your Sunday school. Wherever they could find a space to do it, it happened, right? Um, then in 1890, the Moore Act of 1890 required states to provide land grants for colleges to serve black students. So still there needed a way, there needed to be a space, a dedicated space for these schools to develop. And, and so the lobbying of these churches and, and um, civil rights activists at this time, or activists at this time, not civil rights to say, but we have civil rights, but civil rights is not only in one period of time, but civil rights is of a, a long period of time. But the civil rights activists and activists at this time, 1890, um, lobbied the government, or the states, I should say, not government, but not, not federal, but state, for land grants of, what they, of which they were permitted to have, all right, for the purposes prescribed above uh, that I just said, all right? Um, so these, these were founded for free, a newly free black slaves, I mean, sorry, founded for free, a newly free blacks, and for low socioeconomic populations, right? Later, it included whites unable to attend state-supported schools. And the HBCU, HBCU then later, so, all, so, so we got 1837, created and founded by parochial schools or churches. Then in 1890, the states give land grants for these HBCUs to exist and make them more permanent within locations or states. And then in 1965, the Higher Education Act created the term historically black colleges and university. So before this time, it wasn't termed historically black colleges and university. Before this time, it was, it was termed institutes for colored youth. And then it became historically black colleges after the Higher Education Act of 1965. 
This law defines these schools as any historical black college or university that was established prior to 1964, whose principal mission was and is the education of black Americans. That is the context for historically black colleges. So now that we've gone years and years and years and having historically black colleges, and I happen to go to a historically black college, and many of my friends have, there's, there's something to it. There's, there's something to it. And there, you know, from my personal experience in a historical black college, it was the first time in my, my educational experience outside of, of schools that were mostly all black that I felt like a first-class citizen. It was the first time that I felt like school was an extension of my family and that the learning continued not only with academics, but the social emotional learning also. It continued with etiquette. It continued with my purpose in life. And so we'll talk about more about that later on. Here's a YouTube clip from two young ladies from YouTube discussing the pros and cons of HBCUs versus PWIs. And why did you choose HU? So my mom had a lot of like familiarity with the school because she used to come down a lot. And then I wanted like, pretty much I just wanted change. Like I wanted distance from my school, from like Pennsylvania. And I also wanted like different differences from like all the white people. So I got a nice change in atmosphere. And I chose USC because one, they gave me a full tuition scholarship, and two, it was my top choice school because of their like journalism communication school, which is called Annenberg, which is pretty dope, but a dope, dope. So those are that's why I chose to go to USC. Also, I wanted to get kind of far from home. LA is about so the pro of going to HBCU. Well, the first pro of going to HBCU is being surrounded by Black people that are also successful or wanting to be successful. My first pro is, I don't know if this is shallow, but like my first pro is coin, AKA money. <laughs> I have finessed so much money <laughs> out of my school. I got into to pay for me to go to conferences. I have a full tuition scholarship, which is like $200,000. Well, way more than that actually, cause tuition is like 50, I don't know. It's, it's high, it's high y'all. <laughs> my second pro, sorry. Basically, there's a lot of connections. So no matter like what HBCU you really go to, there's a lot of people that like went, that go places that have gone to HBCUs. And so when you're applying to jobs and like trying to do stuff in the real world, when like that person that's high up that went to an HBCU sees you went to an HBCU, they're gonna be like, oh yeah, you can have this internship. So my second pro, Oh, my second pro is pulling the race card. And <laughs> let me explain what I mean by that. So say that there is a opportunity where they're only taking like 10 people and they already chose like seven white people. Then they gonna do a black, a Latino, and a, like an Asian for the last. <laughs> and so since there's less black people, you have a better chance, especially if you know the people who are like, presenting the opportunity and it's like you that go-to black person <laughs> right, the next one is that a lot of people when they need minorities in their programs or whatever you're trying to do they look straight to hbcus so 
Like, if you need to, get, like, you want to go into, like, a really good graduate school program and they need, like, minorities to build up that grad school, they'll just look at the top HBC, HBCUs they'll see. And Hampton happens to be one of them, so. My last pro that I've experienced at USC, and this might be really specific to USC because it's in Los Angeles and it's a private university, but accessibility, so all the professors are like really dope. I got to go to like an Oscars photo shoot because my professor was just like, who trying to go? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so they have a lot of like industry connections, which is true with HBCUs as well, but I just thought that was like definitely in my top three, like one of the best things I've experienced at USC. First con. <laughs> all right, so Hans is like, Sometimes, <laughs> okay, so I don't know if this is true about every HBCU, but it's very true for Hampton where they'll just send you on like the runaround. So say you needed to like do one thing, like say you need to apply for a new student ID. So you go to the place to get the student ID, but then they'll send you somewhere else because you got to get this form from them before you can go to them. So you go to get the form, but then the people that tell you to get the form tell you to go somewhere else to get some other form <laughs> for no reason. My first con is that <laughs> my first con is that minorities are advertised but not celebrated slash embraced. So for example, I work at the Center for Black Cultural and Student Affairs and there's other centers for Latino students, for Asian students, and like we are kind of like the last consider when it comes to funding, when it comes to events and things like that. So they like to like put us in pamphlets, but it's like, we need money. We want to have a place, a safe place for us. And it's like, you kind of have to explain why the space needs to exist when it should just be like a given. So another big con is that you get really comfortable around black people. So when you graduate or you're going to an internship in the summer, you forget that the rest of the world isn't like your HBCU. So like, the rest of the world is predominantly white, like let's be honest. And at Hampton or any other HBCU, you're gonna be like surrounded by black people and you're used to that. So it's kind of like uncomfortable once you leave. So my second con is something that a lot of you guys might be interested in when you get to college. So USC specifically doesn't have a huge um, pan, <laughs> does not, USC does not have a huge NPHC um, Greek life, so most of the frats and sororities, like the Divine Nine, like some of them don't exist. I think we have like one that's not active, and then the rest have like between one and like ten members. And then my last kind is that my school is very traditional, so. A lot of things that should be online or should have been like emailed to you, it's like printed out. And they have like these events they try to make you go to for like traditional reasons. And it's kind of extra. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, they care. It's just they can still update a little bit. So my last con is about social life slash functions. So basically, if you're at an HBCU, you just show up and it's black people, black music, black life. So at USC, it's like, are the black people having a function? And like, if there is, it's usually one, maybe two. In these articles, I was very surprised at some of the things that, that I ran into. I ran into an article, you know, once I got out of content, I ran into an article um, from Forbes um, that said, you know, is diversity destroying HBCUs? And this is by Richard Vetter. 
who's a distinguished professor of economics at Ohio University. He wrote this in November 4th, 2019. He stated that enrollment was trending down for black students and trending down in overall enrollment for all students. Uh, he also contradicts the welcome environment of HBU, HBCUs as safe spaces for African-Americans. So, he said a lot of things here. Um, and and really, really what he was saying in a nutshell was that HBCUs, HBCUs were uh, dying. So I found this very interesting. I needed to know. I would say, wow, is this true? And so let me let me let me read this. Um, and the U.S. Department of Education in a Digest of Education Statistics opposes his beliefs. I mean, his 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 theory. In 2017 to 2018, they say that uh, that it, uh, enrollment rose 2.1% for black students. Well, no, actually, no, no, wait, wait, let's let's back that up. Actually, the U.S. Department of Education in the Digest of Education Statistics, 2017-2018, actually supports his notion. Rose, it says that for black students, it rose 2.1% for black students and rose 45% for non-black students. Okay. So historically, black colleges are becoming less black. Nearly one fourth are not African American. The why? More and more people are saying no to college. Well, so more and more people saying no to college, that means all colleges. 2010 to 2017, white enrollment fell 17.37%. Black enrollment fell 16.23%. On the other hand, more Hispanics are going to college. Hispanic enrollment rose 28.8%. Asian enrollment rose by 5%. So white and black enrollment fell, Hispanic and Asian enrollment increased. What is it? Is it the recruitment strategy? Well, it's on the table. So, Mr. Vetta, or Professor Vetta, feels that Racial identity is one of the causes of the decline of uh, HBCUs. He feels that in today's uh, in today's struggle, racial identity is causing uh, it to HBCUs to be segregated and suffer enrollment because they're not open and they're not diversifying for everyone. And they're not diversifying the enrollment to offer everyone an opportunity to enter their colleges, and so therefore, it's hurting their enrollment. Whereas white institutions, on the other hand, they offer diversity and inclusion. They offer athletic scholarships. They offer academic scholarships. And they offer greater prestige and postgraduate earnings. Okay, so again, let's do the comparison here. Richard Vetter says, Professor Richard Vetter says, from Ohio University says, black institutions only offer racial identity. Whereas white institutions offer diversity and inclusion athletic scholarships, academic scholarships, greater prestige, and postgraduate earnings. So this is between, this is in Forbes magazine that this article was written, and then the U.S. Uh, Department of Education supports the decline in enrollment for whites and blacks, but that's all universities, so it wasn't targeted toward black universities. We're not sure what those numbers are. Didn't say that. And it says that Asian and Hispanic uh, enrollment in colleges have increased. 
So this is this is the argument here. This is the argument. And my question is really a lot of question marks, a lot of question marks, because I'm I'm concerned if that's the case. So I go to another article, affordablecollegesonline.org, right? And this one was published uh, 1 5 2021. So January 5th, 2021. Up to date. And this article talks about the myths versus reality, the current state of historically black colleges. So, number one, HBCU enrollment is declining. That's the first myth. HBCU enrollment is declining. This is opposing the reports in Forbes, right? Now, they state that enrollment is increasing due to racial unrest at predominantly white institutions. They refer to it as PWI, predominantly white institutions. The most recent institute of the University of Missouri, now entitled the Missouri Effect by Washington Post of 2016. So there was an incident at Missouri, the University of Missouri, called the Missouri Effect, and the Washington Post did an article about the impact of that. So, so students of color are going to these predominantly white, and I'm telling you that when you talk about, you're talking about populations of 20 to 40,000, and the population of non-white students or, or, or black students on that campus could be anywhere from from 300 to 1,000 students in a population of 20,000 to 40,000 students, right? So. You know, even you could say three hundred to fifteen hundred students. So the, the the there's not there's no equity in terms of the representation of of what's happening in America, right? In these universities, right? And so in the Washington Post, two thousand sixteen cites Central State University, which is a historically black colleges college or uh, university, uh, increased by twenty two percent. Delaware State, 19%. Delhi University, 22%. Florida Memorial University, 20%. Shaw University, 49%. South Carolina State, 39%. Tuskegee University, 32%. Virginia State University, 30%. Winston-Salem State University, 10%. And 25% in graduate students. This is by the Washington Post in 2016. Number two, myth. HBCUs lack quality education and degree offerings. Again, Richard Vetter said that the only thing that historically black colleges offer is racial identity. Well, myth number two. They provide the same level of quality. 20% of all African Americans graduate receive their degree from HBCU, although they only represent 3%. HBCUs HBCUs produce 25% of all African-American graduates with science, technology, engineering, and mathematics degrees. Wow. Myth three, HBCUs are too expensive. People today desire to get a quality education without breaking the bank. So when the US News World Report suggests otherwise, HBCUs generally charge $6,000 less in tuition. Howard University is touted as one of the top historically black institutions at $25,000 per year. Spelman, $28,000 a year. Hampton, $25,000 a year. North Carolina A&T, $19,000 a year. Myth number four, HBCUs lack diversity. 
according to the National Center for Educational Statistics, which is part of the U.S. Department of Education in 2016, UPenn Graduate School of Education in 2011, the U.S. News and World Report of 2013, the racial breakdown in HBCUs are 76 black, African-American. Now, when you say black and African-American, there's a combination of the blacks are just not all the same, right? There's a combination of all kinds of ethnic identities within black and African-American. 3% Hispanic Latino, 13% white, and 1% other. That is the racial breakdown of these colleges. Myth number five, HBCUs don't have the resources to adequately support students. True, they don't have some endowments as white institutions. However, they do receive 27.7 million in federal Title IV funding. In addition, many of them receive $100 million in endowments, Tuskegee being one of them. And that's $100 million in endowment per school, okay? Myth number six. HBCUs don't prepare students for success. Well, 55% of graduates say HBCUs prepared them for life after graduation. Com compared to 30% who did not attend HBCUs. 51% of graduates say they're doing well financially versus 29% who did not attend HBCUs. Networking and resources. In a historical black college, a professor's network is yours. Faculty members are known in their industries and extend themselves to you place you. Not only that, but these faculty members often act as your mentors as you as you, you continue your four-year process in these schools. And they mentor you into these positions and their connections because they taught you. And so they can speak for you. Not only that, but they represent your identity in the world of work. And so I know I, when I when I graduated, I remember not, when I, not when I graduated, but when I remember some friends of mine graduated from school Many of them left with six-figure salaries, and they were like 21 at the time, with Fortune 500 companies, many. Now, when I went to an all-white school, it wasn't the same way. In fact, it was very difficult to find employment coming out of an all-white school. Seven, myth seven, HBCUs are just party schools. So a lot of this can be taken from the, the myths from the bands and the football classic. But the band and the football classics that happen at HBCUs, HBCUs are primary funding sources. They're the biggest fundraisers for the university to move agendas for the sport programs and the academic programs for the school. So yeah, it is a one big party because everybody comes back into one space and, and, and they, they, they reminisce on, on their life there and they connect with what's happening there and they get to see what's modern in the school and they create, create those ties and connections, just like modern fundraisers do today with alumni associations. Very similar. Myth number eight, degrees are not the same as those from other universities. Refer to the earlier data. 
refer to how these schools began. I gave you statistical evidence in terms of the graduates and how they do after. Again, these are from staff writers, Chad Dion Lassiter, John C. Johnson C. Smith, Kimberly Brown from Fisk University, and Quandra Schaefer's from Spelman College. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pushing Boundaries. Once again, my name is Sharif Rucker. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor by commenting, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know. All of these things are free and take very little effort, but would mean the world to me. Thanks again and stay tuned.